This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Historical fantasy fans will recognize the name R.F. Kwan. R.F. or Rebecca is the author behind the Poppy War Trilogy, an award-winning historical fantasy epic. Since 2020, she's been pursuing a PhD in East Asian languages and literatures at Yale. In May, she wrapped up the semester just in time for the book tour for her fifth novel, Yellowface. She calls it her pandemic novel and a gear shift from her past works of historical fantasy into literary fiction. Here's the breakdown. Authors June Hayward and Athena Liu were supposed to be twin rising stars, but Athena's a literary darling, while June Hayward is literally nobody. Who wants stories about basic white girls, June thinks. So when June witnesses Athena's death in a freak accident, she acts on impulse. She steals Athena's just-finished masterpiece, an experimental novel about the unsung contributions of Chinese laborers during World War I. Today on Where We Live, Rebecca Kwan joins us. We'll give you a fair warning. There might be some minor spoilers ahead. So if you want to stay super safe, which we totally understand, you can always find us on ctpublic.org slash where we live or on your favorite podcast app after you finish binge reading. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a huge pleasure. Uh, we're all fangirling a little bit here this hour, I must admit. I'm so very excited to have this conversation and want to start with these characters. And I've had such complicated feelings reading June and Athena because I like get them both at the same time. And I also want to slap them both at the same time. So my first question is, is that common feedback that you're getting? Oh, yeah. Well, obviously, June was written to be awful. But I think people are also surprised by how awful Athena is in turn. And I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, I did have a lot of friends who are early readers come to me and say they felt guilty for feeling sympathetic towards June, that even though they knew she'd done all these awful things, they were still kind of on her side and and really got where she was coming from. And that's because, well, generally as a craft trick. I think it's important to put a little bit of yourself and be able to empathize with any character, no matter how villainous they are, because otherwise they just become a two-dimensional cardboard cutout of a bad guy. But it's not fun to watch somebody do horrible things just for the sake of being horrible. It's a lot more interesting to follow a character who has good motivations or maybe started in a good place who does care about others and and is vulnerable and can be hurt in turn. And the trick with June is that the things that she suffered early in her publishing career, the humiliation, the disappointment, the terror of having her work out there and being completely ignored is something that a lot of writers can sympathize with. And it's exactly how I felt during the first few years of my career. So all of those experiences she recounts of going to a bookstore for a signing and having nobody show up for the bookstore manager being very awkward and finally insinuating that it's best to pack up and you go home or the constant trickle of disappointing sales numbers in the first few weeks. That's all things that I know very well and can write from the heart. So so even though June does terrible things with her resentment and her view on the world is very skewed and irrational, her resentments and her her anger at publishing are coming from a place that is credible. Now, Athena, on the other hand, is surprisingly awful because the pitch of the story makes her seem like the victim. It seems like it's set up so that 
June, the white protagonist just steals the work of this innocent, diverse Chinese American author whose words are exploited and taken without her consent. But I really don't like to write stories with such clear cut ethics. I like to make everything gray and messy. And I wanted to disambiguate the question of race from the question of stealing other people's work. So we find out as the story unfolds that Athena also has done quite a lot of taking other people's personal experiences, their pain, their trauma, and sometimes literally their written work without their consent and spinning it around to benefit her own career to profit over the stories that she writes based on that. And I wanted to open up ethical questions of why is it so obviously wrong when June does it, but more hazy and gray and possibly permissible when Athena does it. So I had a lot of fun with my two complicated, messy, lovable, but deeply hateable main characters. When I was going to say, we had a lot of fun reading Yellowface. And and I, I feel your early readers, too, because I, I did find myself you know sympathetic sometimes. And I'm like, oh, man. Was I supposed to feel that way? And I rein myself back and I'm like, but Athena is not that great either. So it's very complicated. And let me just say that ambiguity that you just mentioned, that's times that by like a million because you certainly achieved it with both June and Athena. And speaking of June, I want to uh, kind of bring bring the focus back to her really quickly. You know, as our narrator, you know, June is really as unsympathetic as she is unreliable. Can you talk about what it was like to craft Athena's character mostly through someone else's eyes because you know I was wondering is this a true Athena you know what version of Athena are we seeing through June's eyes it's so much fun to write a character who's a ghost this isn't a spoiler because it happens in the first chapter but Athena dies almost immediately she chokes in a freak pancake eating contest test and the rest of the novel um you know she's obviously not alive and all we get are various characters telling their versions of who they thought Athena was and there are multiple conflicting versions and June obviously does not have very charitable feelings towards her but neither do many other people and it's fun playing with somebody's legacy so that on the one hand you have this perfect, unimpeachable, successful, pretty young woman who died far too early. And that's the official narrative of her, the version that gets printed shortly after her death. But then all these cracks keep appearing in the facade. And it turns out a lot of people resented and disliked her and and had some serious beef with her. And I had fun making it completely ambiguous and ultimately unknowable what Athena was really like because she doesn't get a voice in this story. She doesn't get to tell her side because she's gone and all we can do is fill in the blanks. And, you know, June had judged Athena for sort of absorbing and relaying other people's stories. You also told Connecticut author Zakia Delila Harris that Athena is your worst nightmare because she sort of operates as a cultural broker in this way. Can you talk about that complexity of authorship and where some authors like Athena really have it wrong? And I have to also mention that there are ways that this applies to journalism and we were hard pressed not to consider. And that's just another whole show idea, I think. Oh, that's fascinating. I would really love to hear your perspective on how this works in journalism. In the case of Athena, 
um, she's not just my worst nightmare because she operates as a cultural broker. And when I think of cultural brokers, I think specifically actually to some of the Asian American authors who became successful during the Cold War because the fiction they were writing was so convenient for a narrative that assimilation was possible in the US, that the US is a place of tolerance and diversity and opportunity. So there are authors who are actually being trotted around on global tours by the State Department, funded by the US government to spread their message of how wonderful life in America was. And I find that fascinating where uh, a marginalized perspective and state interests align so cleanly in, in ways that make you naturally suspicious when you read their work. Now, that's not what's going on with Athena here, but she has occupied a place of immense cultural clout and influence in part because she's often the only Asian American woman in the room and she's read as the Asian American author who can explain Asia and Asian Americans to everybody else. And this makes her very paranoid and jealous and distrustful of anybody else who might threaten her position. So she actively rejects any overtures from her own community for mentorship or support. She doesn't like being around younger writers because she condescends towards them and, and she's secretly terrified that any of one of them might take her place. And, and she has no sense of solidarity and community support. And, and that's the nightmare for me. I never want to become somebody like that. But I think Athena's overnight success story, her Cinderella bestseller then has kind of messed with her head. And and she has a and this is the more sympathetic reading of Athena that I think doesn't get explored in the text because again everybody who's recounting them a version of hers has some reason to hate her. But I think the kindest reading of Athena is somebody who was too young for the kind of success and platform that she has and is desperately trying to cling on to it and stay relevant and stay on top and doesn't know how to deal with it and doesn't have anybody in her life that can guide her through it. And that's a very sad place to be. And we're definitely going to have to revisit this at some point, um, which is my unofficial invite that you must come back to where we live. Um, yeah, talking about journalism and and why it jumped out to me is because we we do relay other people's stories as well. And I'm I'm wondering too, you know, if maybe the difference is I am still writing from their perspective, it's not my story, it's just using sort of my my hands and my skills, my keyboard to sort of write out their stories. And and also building on what you just mentioned as well, maybe being the only Asian writer, somehow you become the one person who can tell uh, Asian stories. And I, I do see that in journalism too. And I think it's something that we're slowly but surely uh, getting out of. And so that's kind of the the element that jumped out to me in terms of writing fiction versus journalism. But I'm feeling there's a lot of interconnection there. Oh, that makes sense. I think one difference, though, is that in journalism, there is some idea of consent and there is the necessity of fact-checking and accuracy. But when you can take somebody's life experience and spin it into fiction, the, the fictional part operates as a shield for the author to interpret events however they like, you know, make people come off as worse than they might have been, or to inject motivations or ideological biases that might not have been there in the first place. So possibly the capacity for harm in fiction is much greater.
And a perfect lead into our next question, really, I want to ask, how does this conversation sort of dovetail with the hashtag own voices conversation? Uh, and just a note for those who are not familiar with the term, it was coined in 2015 by Kareen Divis, who described books about characters from underrepresented groups in which the author shares the same identity, drawing on the author's own experiences and written from their own perspective. But it has since fallen out of favor for a lot of reasons. And one of those reasons is the nonprofit organization called We Need Diverse Books announced that they stopped using the term in favor of more specific descriptions of each author. Uh, the vagueness of the term, they said, has been used to place diverse creators in uncomfortable and potentially unsafe situations. And so, Rebecca, you mentioned own voices in Yellowface. So I would love to hear what are your thoughts about that? I think own voices came from a very good place and their understandable motivations for wanting to focus on creators who come from the communities that they're writing about. And it's coming from a place of exhaustion with years and years of messy representation, of uncritical replication, of often harmful stereotypes and generalizations about groups that might be subverted or refuted if we publish people who actually came from those groups that are being written about. At the same time, I've also become pretty exhausted with the term, and I think it feeds into this larger problem of how publishing deals with identity politics and this very reductive way that we match the identity of an author to what they're allowed to talk about. So in the case of own voices putting authors in uncomfortable positions, I'm thinking specifically of authors who are forced to disclose parts of themselves that they weren't comfortable disclosing, you know, authors being asked to come out of the closet, for instance, if they'd written a book about queer characters. And all this is circling around a mentality I find deeply frustrating, which is just this very rigid idea of authenticity and this single issue reading of people as having one identity trait, which allows them to write one specific type of story. And it's related to discourse about white authors, for instance, not being allowed to write outside of their own experiences. Arguments like stay in your lane, don't write about Asians if you're white, don't write about the communities that you're not a part of. And again, these Arguments are coming from a sympathetic place of being exhausted by the clumsy and often directly offensive ways that, that were often written about. At the same time, I think this logic too often gets turned around and hurts, hurts marginalized writers more than it oper opens up opportunities for anybody else. Because if you buy into this logic that you can't write outside of your lane, that you have to be strictly authentic in anything that you do, then we can't write fiction anymore. We can only write autobiographies or thinly veiled autobiographies, which means that all Asian American writers can do is write about things like family trauma, the difficulty of being immigrants, anti-Asian hate, etc. We're pigeonholed into writing these very specific stories based on our racial identity. And we see this pop up in acquisitions meetings all the time. If you don't fit the perfect mold of what an Asian American author is supposed to look like or the themes that they write about, then your, your book isn't considered attractive. And, and this is so frustrating because all that anyone has ever wanted is to open up opportunities for storytelling for, for voices that historically haven't had a platform. So I too don't really use own voices anymore, although historically we can see why folks thought it was important. 
Yeah, I can definitely see that too. And I think what you just said is so powerful. And the fact that you mentioned that it's happening in acquisition meetings all the time, because I wanted to ask overall, would you say publishers get it? Are they getting it? Or is it still an ongoing problem that's happening in the industry? I wish I could speak authoritatively on what goes on inside other publishers. Um, I think like every creative industry, right, it has a ton of problems. Um, so in no sense can you say they get it. Obviously, they don't. Um, there's another publishing scandal that crops up in the headlines like every other week, it seems. At the same time, even though Yellow Face is a book primarily about negative experiences in publishing, I want to emphasize that there are a lot of amazing people in publishing trying to push against these trends. And those are people on the editorial level, the folks in publicity and marketing, the people who came into this industry because of sheer love for the story and love for other authors and who are fighting to bring voices that historically haven't been heard to an audience that desperately wants to read them and they're not getting paid enough for it and they're being overworked and disrespected. So it's easy to write off all of publishing, you know, so quickly and dismissively, but it's important to remember that the industry is full of folks trying to change things from inside. You've been listening to author Rebecca Kwan. We'll pick up our conversation about her new book, Yellow Face, after a quick break. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're talking with author Rebecca Kwan, discussing her new book, Yellow Face, a thriller about the publishing industry. And so, Rebecca, you know, my experience reading Yellow Face is really like watching a train wreck happen in slow motion, then it speeds up, and then it slows down again, but that train is most definitely falling apart. Can you give us an idea of what it was like writing this, and how were you considering the reader experience? I've had a lot of readers tell me that Yellow Face feels like a book that was fun to write and a book that I wrote all in one sitting. And I'm glad it reads that way because that's certainly how it felt. 
I've previously written these very long, chunky historical fantasy epics that that took months and months to meticulously plan and research and plot and reorient the plot and move pieces around, etc. But Yellow Face, which is shorter and and breezier, was a completely different writing experience. It felt like the whole story just plopped into my head at once. And then once I knew the through line, I just wrote it in these frenzied, feverish bursts and it all came together very quickly. And I think it's in part because there is such a tone of zippy, gleeful destruction that runs throughout the entire book. There's never really a moment where the reader is allowed to catch their breath or things slow down and they're like, okay, let's take stock of everything. It's just careening from one disaster to another. And I thought I really wanted to imitate the breathless feeling, the constant distractions, the, the feeling of being pulled apart in a million different directions that being on social media can evoke. And the the anxiety and the stomach dropping, you know, um, uh, nervousness that doom scrolling through Twitter or flicking through TikTok can inspire in you. And it's not a, a brain space that I like to be in for very long. In fact, I'm trying to use social media less and less. But I wanted to see if I could craft a book that replicates the experience of being so plugged in and paying attention to so much going all at once that it seems like you're only ever in a train wreck that is speeding up and accelerating towards devastating consequences. Well, I definitely felt like I couldn't stop. So you did an amazing job there for sure. And I do want to talk about too, June, something that really jumped out to me is June really prided herself on being so easy to work with as she sort of sliced and diced Athena's work. I want to ask, why do you think people are so resistant towards the presentation of different languages? in an English novel, because I have to say, you using uh, da and xiao and ah in the book in the context of names that made me smile when I read them. But of course, I understand the initial, I would understand the initial confusion, but it seems like it's something that maybe a simple Google can help, you know, especially a lot of Western classics like Russian classics that leave a lot of French text untranslated, but we get footnotes on them. So I'm curious to hear, do you think there's a difference when it comes to English and Western languages, you think? I think publishers have always been worried about accessibility and everybody just wants to provide a smooth reading experience. At the same time, like you mentioned, there are plenty of classical texts that do not offer a smooth reading experience, and the reader is just expected to do their research or figure things out, read the forward, read the footnotes in order to keep up. I'm reading Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov right now because I decided it's my sexy big book summer and I'm finally going to try to find the focus and attention span to sit with some very long epics. and. I mean, Dostoevsky and all of the classic Russian canon is is incredibly frustrating because the characters have like five different nicknames, diminutives, um, and if you you if your attention drops for even one second, then suddenly you don't know what a scene is about. But there's never been any attempt to simplify any of that. The reader is just expected to meet the level of story, and I think there is a growing cautiousness and a willingness on the reader's part to apply that same level of effort to books about non-Western languages and, and works in Chinese. Um, Ken Wu, who has translated a lot of Chinese fiction, has very good essays and explanations in the forwards to these texts about how he isn't trying to smooth out the reading experience so that the reader doesn't know that the work came from Chinese in the first place, but to provide actually additional context and explanations so that 
things are gained in translation, extra context is added. It feels like a, a fun experience where you are juggling between two languages and learning more about the source language rather than ignoring it entirely. I think readers, the, readers these days are up to the effort. I think June and her editor, when they're trying to replace anything that's difficult about the original text, belong to a much older model of publishing that is just trying to sell an easy commercial experience. But they are vastly underestimating the contemporary reader, in my opinion. For sure. And I, I want to fangirl for just a quick second because I swear you're in my you're in my mind because I was thinking the brothers Karamazov when I was thinking about that question because I just finished reading it. So while you're having your uh, hot girl summer sexy reading, I actually had a hot girl sexy winter reading with, with this Russian <laughs> classic. That's so, awesome. Um, and I, I agree that it's it, it takes a lot of brain power, but it's actually really accessible, um, especially if you have a, a good translation. And, and another point is I was also thinking exactly um, what Ken Liu has said when he does his translations, that there are a lot of things that are, are in fact untranslatable. There's a poetry that that gets lost, but the footnotes certainly do help the reader. So it makes me very happy for you that you said that. <laughs> so um, I wasn't too off point here. Um, but uh, we I just have a, a moment for a final question for this this segment. But without spoiling anything too hard, I kind of want to jump ahead to the novel's finale. Uh, the final chapter alone is an incredible moment and you know, almost free of space and time. And after all the actions has gone down, we sit with June, imagining this sort of vicious cycle continuing. And I think there's this thought that June actually doesn't learn anything. And I do love how ultimately human this is to a certain extent, maybe a little too real. Can we? Can you uh, talk us through that? So the book has quite a cyclical, pessimistic ending. And I don't think that's too much of a spoiler because it's not like a novel like this was ever going to have a happy ending. Any novel where true justice is served would you know, be far more absurd and ridiculous than the satire that this novel already exists. And with that, I wanted to think about the very worrying way in which we treat cancel culture and online callouts and um, pylons, where it always begins from a place of genuine concern, wanting to acknowledge some harm that's being done, wanting to talk about bad behavior in industries or communities, but it very quickly spirals because it's happening so visibly online for anybody to pop into and offer their opinion on. It it becomes entertainment. And I hate this. I hate how people gleefully talk about other people's pain and want to hear updates as if it's a reality show, as if it's a piece of fiction unfolding for their enjoyment rather than very painful things that that impact real life people um and without giving too much away i think the ending of the book is a commentary on how these frustrating issues of racism and discrimination and exploitation in this industry might just be spun again as another fun tale about it all and i want us to stop thinking about it as fun tales i want us to think about it as as important conversations we need to have and to change the way we're having those conversations and speaking of uh, Dostoevsky, uh, my producer and I felt a very heavy Russian literature inspiration in this final chapter as you talk about sort of just how how it progressed. And it does feel like an incredible narrative experiment. Can you can you talk about that? Does that make sense? Well, 
my reading Dostoevsky postdates finished in Yellow Face. Um, so I don't know if that influence is there. I will say I read a lot of Vladimir Nabokov, and he's always been one of my favorite authors. Um, Pale Fire, especially, I think is hilarious. And I can't remember now if I read Pale Fire before or after I turned in Yellow Face, or maybe I was reading it during edits. But it similarly has this protagonist who is quite hilariously lying about who he is and lying about a version of events that is subverted all at the end. And I think there, it's just so fun to write somebody who is so delusional and clever at the same time and is lying to themselves about their genuine motivations, but is so good at spinning an alternate version of the truth to the reader that you find yourself very tempted to believe it. Absolutely. I think June is kind of the peak of unreliable narrators. So you definitely did a great job there. Uh, We'll pick up this conversation with author Rebecca Kwan after a quick break. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. You're listening to my conversation with award-winning author Rebecca Kwan just after the release of her fifth novel, Yellow Face. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, So Rebecca, I want to also take this opportunity to talk about what else are you working on? Because you started your PhD at Yale's Department of East Asian Languages and Literature. I want to ask, what gives you the energy to pursue such different professional endeavors while doing them so well? And by the way, you also just won a nebula. So massive congratulations to you. Thank you. Um, I get a lot of questions about how I balance everything and I never have an encouraging answer because there is no magical solution. I just always have too much to do and I'm always running behind on deadlines and not getting enough sleep and feeling stressed constantly. And I've also learned recently that I just have to slow down and build some breaks for myself because I used to be able to write and go to classes and manage everything all at once. But the PhD is much harder than my master's programs were and far harder than undergrad was. And I'm also teaching now and teaching involves so many hours of preparing for lecture and 
and prepping for discussion section, writing handouts, grading papers, going to office hours, etc. So it just feels these days like my days have shrunk. And if I try to put out work at the same pace that I have before, then it's not going to be the quality that I expect from myself. So I'm forcing myself to put the brakes on. And I had a fantasy novel that was supposed to come out next year, but we've pushed it to 2025 precisely because I just desperately need that time off. I mean, I'm studying for my qualifying exams next year, and that means reading anywhere from 150 to 180 texts and writing notes on all of them and demonstrating some mastery of them. I'm also getting married next summer and I want to go on my honeymoon and enjoy it without being stressed. So I think it's good for myself as a creative just because you need time to recharge and get inspired again. And and also for my own mental health and um, myself as a human that I'm taking a break from everything. Well, I think a lot of people would appreciate that message very hard and massive, massive congratulations for uh, getting married next year. That's really exciting. And for sure, you should definitely take some time off for that. Um, and <laughs> so you. you're doing so many things you've you've done. Uh, well, I mean, you just made a list of all of the things that you're working on. And we know that something else that's sort of in your horizon is a thing that scared you all this time that you have said in an inter- interview, which is a book that's in conjunction with your father. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that's going to be like and, and about that process? And I also think it's wonderful that your father wants to work with you on this. How important is that for you? Oh, I'm so excited about working on this project. It's bringing me closer to my family. And it's in a lot of ways, the story that I've always wanted to write but never felt ready for until now. And so briefly, this this book, um, which is just acquired, it's, it's not coming out for a few more years because I have to write it. Um, but it's this big intergenerational family epic that traces a Chinese-American family from 1989 to their movement to the U.S. and, and their life there. And they're attempts to negotiate, you know, carving out an individual path for themselves while being affected by so many major events in Chinese and American history. And it's very closely inspired by my dad's own experience coming to the U.S. as a grad student in 1989. And I've just had so much fun sitting down and turning on the recorder and interviewing him and his friends. You know, he has this whole generation of of uncles. I call them uncle, even though there's no blood relation Folks who came from the same village or folks he met during his year in college in China who, who all immigrated to the U.S. around the same time and are spread out all over the country. And I'm fascinated by those early years trying to figure out how to speak English, how to pay rent, how to find an apartment, how to get a driver's license in the U.S. when none of their parents had ever driven around in cars. And it's easy to frame these family autobiographies of these big sob stories, you know, how hard it was to be an immigrant. But but I'm discovering along the way the the parts that inspire me most are are the joyful, silly aspects. You know, the fact that my mom was the one to teach everybody else to drive. And her advice was that when you're going downhill, just put the car in neutral to save gas. I mean, that's ridiculous. And I'm shocked that anybody survived. But it's a deeply human story about just those early years of figuring out how to be Americans and um, and I want to 
interrogate and deconstruct those stereotypes or those standard narratives of immigrant trauma and instead focus on the specificity, which somehow makes it more universal all at once, just of this this one story of Chinese Americans um, navigating this new place. Well, it makes me feel so joyful to hear you talk about joy because I think there's still so much craving for it, especially in the context of what you were just talking about. And I hear that a lot, too, that we need more of those happy stories because it really just shows how human we all really are. And so that's just me saying that I'm very much looking forward to that. So all the luck to you for creating and writing it. And I also want to touch on the last time you were on the show, you talked about a very different uh, writing process for the poppy war where you shared each chapter with your father and wanting to sort of one up the last chapter and you compared this to charles dickens's um, monthly installments and i'm also a huge fan of him by the way uh, did you have a similar process for yellow face no because i actually haven't used that process for any of my novels since the poppy war that was a very exceptional time because it was the first book I ever wrote and I didn't know that anything I wrote was very good or would make sense to any reader aside from myself. So I found that the only way to motivate myself was to continue sending chapters, chapters one by one to my dad every few days and his just overwhelming enthusiasm and excitement for the next installment is what pushed me to keep writing to finish the story for him. But that actually doesn't suit my writing process very well because I don't like writing chronologically. And I've never since been able to replicate the experience of writing it chapter by chapter because I'm messy and I like to go all over the place. I like to write the end before I write the beginning. I like to write random scenes in the middle and then stitch it all together. So with every subsequent book, I'm very much in my own head and I'm the only one who has access to the manuscript until there's a draft that makes sense and is polished enough for somebody else to devour all at once but so so in short no but that first experience was very special and I'll never forget it well and I was going to say just by you saying that I can imagine if you did that for yellow face it would be an extremely chaotic serial installment <laughs> <laughs> so, and so previously you had said that literary fiction was a gear shift for you do you think you'll shift back here again in the future oh sure I love not knowing what I'm going to write next I have always wanted to challenge myself with every new project to try on a different voice, to try on different narrative structures and techniques. And that's because I'm terrified of getting bored and just spinning my wheels and writing the same kind of story over and over again. And there are authors who I admire immensely who did just write the same kind of story over and over again for their entire career or stayed in one genre or even stayed in the same series. And maybe that works for them, but I could not imagine doing that for 10 books in a row and remaining as excited and interested in writing as I am now. The only way I can keep myself motivated is to treat everything as a fresh new experience. So who knows what I'll write next? Maybe I'll write a rom-com, maybe I'll write a proper romance, maybe I'll dive back into literary fiction, maybe I'll sink back into epic fantasy. Um, I think it's not knowing that is what's exciting. Well, and then speaking of genres, I, I would love to to get your thoughts about, um, do, you, do you think there are any broad changes in attitudes towards fantasy as a genre? I know that was a huge influence for you growing up. And I think we have a different audience and a different uh, kind of reader now. What are your thoughts about that? 
Well, I would hope so. I do think that sci-fi and fantasy are no longer being read as this very niche genre that only a small collection of nerds is interested in. And a lot of fantasy novels have gone mainstream. I think it's partly the massive popularity of Game of Thrones that proved that fantasy could be this thing that everybody in the country tunes into on Sunday nights instead of something that it's not cool to admit that you like. At the same time, I think that these literary prejudices still exist. There is this assumption that if you write fantasy or science fiction, then you're not really doing anything literary. You know, there's no craft involved. There's no art to the story. The The only re reason why readers are invested is because of the plot and the content. But I think people still don't take fantasy writers seriously as writers, period. So I thought it was very funny when I switched to literary fiction, how there are these headlines such as R.F. Kwong makes her literary debut. And I would just think that once you're four books in, you're no longer a debut author, because I don't think there's that much difference in storytelling between fantasy and lit fic. And there are fantasy authors whose prose, I think, is far more marvelous and artful and beautiful than some lit fic I've read. But people are always going to be snooty about genres they don't understand. Well, I love that you talk about that, too, because so I, I want to ask you, too, because you talked about growing up with a lot of wuxia, which is a Chinese fantasy or, or high fantasy genre. I also grew up with a lot of that. And it's certainly a genre that I've been told as a kid that, oh, you're not reading a real book like that's not that's not real literature. But I have to say. I learned so much of Chinese poetry through through this genre. And is this something that you would consider exploring? Because I would absolutely buy it yesterday. Maybe. Who knows what I'll do in the future? It's not on my slate now. But for instance, I've always wanted to go back to the world of the poppy war. And I think it'll take many years before I'm ready to return to that aesthetic. But I'd never close it off. Well, that makes me hopeful. <laughs> and can you also uh, sort of a, a different kind of gear shift here? Um, can you speak to the recent embrace, too, of a very messy or even unlikable female protagonist in, in literature? I think we've been seeing that a lot um, recently. Is this something that, that you've seen authors leaning into? And do you think you might want to explore it in, in a different way in terms of what you did in Yellowface? I actually don't know that this embrace is messy female protagonists is all that recent. I think, you know, we've had books out for decades about unlikable or monstrous or cold or um, even just the women who, who don't want to be mothers and don't want to be wives. Um, so I'm hesitant to call this a recent trend. I will say that when I was reading around psychological thrillers and trying to understand the genre better, something I noticed in a lot of the these thrillers written by women that have women protagonists is that the protagonist is often this singularly nasty, condescending voice that is somehow just so addictive to listen to. I mean, the voice of Gone Girl listening to Amy, she, she's so full of spite, not just for Nick, but for all other women. She loves to judge them. She loves to sort them into categories such as slut, wife, boring, Midwestern, etc. There's nobody who can live up to her standards. And this, this voice is prevalent in a lot of novels that are Gone Girl wannabes or just similarly situated in the genre. And I'm wondering why that voice is so fun to listen to because it's not a voice that we would ever want to adopt or, or a voice that we even would want to spend all that much time with if it belonged to somebody we knew in real life. But I think people take a lot of pleasure in listening to that 
that spitefulness and vehemence because I think ultimately that anger is not actually directed towards other women, but towards the roles that they're forced to fulfill, the performances they have to put on, the scripts that they have to adhere by, the standards of perfection that all other women in their orbit are trying to live up to. And when you have this nasty female narrator who's just calling it all bullshit, I think that feels immensely liberating and fun. And we've got about two more questions for you. I want to switch gears to a different role that you were able to fulfill. Is be, uh, you deliver the J.R.R. Tolkien lecture on fantasy literature at Oxford that was meant for 2020, but you did it in 2022 because of COVID. I want to know, you know, how did it feel to present that lecture when you're a fan of Tolkien yourself? Because I, too, am a huge Tolkien fan. Oh, it was an amazing experience, especially because... It was my first time back at Oxford since I left in 2020. And I left very unceremoniously in the middle of the night. I remember clunking down the staircases with my two huge suitcases at four in the morning to catch a cab for the train station to get to the airport. And this was because it was March and um, COVID was was spreading like wildfire and everybody was evacuating their international students. And it just, it felt so unreal to leave Oxford in the middle of the night and head to Florida and not know when I would ever be back. So being invited to give that lecture and return in person and standing in college and, and walking those cobblestones felt like a real homecoming. And Oxford has always been kind of a magical place where you feel connected to the scholars who have come before you. It is so much a place that feels removed from space and time, where that distance across decades and centuries has shrunk. And you know you're walking the same paths that so many thinkers whose words you're deeply familiar with came before. So it was all just very magical and meaningful, and I might have cried a bit, but... I well, was just so honored and excited to go back to that lecture. Well, I was going to say, I am just basking in your radio presence right now. Uh, I had the pleasure of also checking out the Bodleian uh, collection of Tokyo works a couple years ago. And let me say, there were there were a couple of tears. So you're in a safe space here for that. <laughs> and uh, I, I also want to touch on, you know, you were on the show last to talk about the Poppy War trilogy, as we've talked about earlier, and it's now actually being made into a TV series. And I'm wondering, are there any updates that you can give on that? Or how, how are you feeling about that? Oh, none that I can talk about. Okay. And none that can be announced specifically because the writer's strike is happening and I don't believe in crossing picket lines. So I'm happy to put the brakes on all TV adaptations on any of my works for however long it takes for writers to get the acknowledgement and compensation they deserve. Well, I was going to ask you, what are your thoughts about the writer's strike? But I think you just gave us your answer. So I appreciate that. And I do want to ask you, do you have any final thoughts on this latest project that you want to leave with us, Rebecca? Anything else that you would love our listeners to know or, or just just to say? Just that I'd love everyone to have fun with it. It's a novel that is so sharp and biting, but it's this gleeful, absurdist process at the same time. And I come from a Chinese storytelling tradition of really bleak, dark humor and the absurdity of stepping back from some incredibly messed up stuff because at some point all you can do is point and laugh at it. So although Yellowface is all about all these very trenchant social issues, it's more importantly, it's just funny and ridiculous, and I want folks to have fun reading it. So I had such a good time writing it. I hope you all have as good of a time reading it. 
Well, I'm smiling as you say that because I often say a lot of Chinese storytelling does not care about your feelings. So I appreciate <laughs> you saying that. I just want to take a moment to、uh, thank you, Rebecca, for spending time with us today. It was such a pleasure. I had a good time, and I hope you had fun too. I had a great time. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pelico. Our technical producer is Cat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.